Welcome to the Springforth Podcast, a ministry of the First Congregational Church of McGregor, Iowa. This recording was made on May 29th, 2022, the seventh Sunday of Easter. Good morning. morning. And a happy Memorial Day weekend to you. A few announcements that I want to highlight. Next week is Pentecost, so we invite all of you wishing to attend to wear red in honor of the color for the season. Things to highlight on our announcement page. You'll see that we will be taking a Strengthen the Church offering on June 5th. And the Strengthen of Church offering is one of five offerings that we collect for the wider church, the UCC. And I'll just read this right up here that they have as to what those monies go towards. The Strengthen the Church offering supports congregations and leaders across the United Church of Christ as they respond to the Pirates' call to be united in Christ for more than just one world. The challenges for our congregation may face congregations seeking to strengthen youth ministry, Some hope to start new congregations. Some look for innovative ways to renew existing congregations. And some need help just developing leaders. So the giving that our congregation will contribute to this fund will help other churches around the conference and around the UCC to help strengthen their ministries and push them forward as they find new and novel ways of expanding the work of God in their respective communities. I am sure at some point in our history, we have been recipients of these funds. I understood in the mid to late 80s, we had received some grant monies to support a startup ministry here that we had back in the day. So it's nice to know that we can give back and help support and encourage future ministries with our contributions to this fund. Vacation Bible School, our ecumenical Vacation Bible School, will be June 6th through the 9th. See Mary for forms. And how did the meal go on Friday? Do you, um, do you have a count as to how many were served? or? <laughs> it was very good. Wow. And... Absolutely. Anything else you want to highlight, Mary, this morning? No. All right, then. Let us continue to worship in spirit and truth.
Let us join together in our invocation as printed in the bulletin. God be with you. Let us pray. O God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. I invite you to join in our opening hymn, number one in the hardcover hymnal. The Lord is king, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of the isles be glad. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies on every side. The earth is the Lord's, and the 
The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth. Confounded be all who worship carved images and delight in false gods. Bow down before him, all you gods. For you are the Lord, most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Light has sprung up for the righteous and joyful gladness for those who are true hearted. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. First lesson today comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 34. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaimed to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city, they are Jews, and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following his instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, 
Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Second lesson today is from Revelations chapter 22, verses 12, 14, 16, and 17, 20, and 21. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let everyone who hears say, come, and let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The one who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Please rise for the gospel. The gospel is taken from John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through the word, that they may be all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be completely one, and the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me, even as you have loved them. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these that you have sent me. I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love which you have loved them may be in them, and I in them. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Let us pray. Loving and most merciful God, giving you thanks for this, this day, for this time together. The weekend of remembrance. And for all the things that have come together that have allowed us to make a contribution to this world. May you settle our hearts and minds today as we continue to reflect on what it means to be your people as we prepare to conclude the Easter season and move into the time of Pentecost. 
the season where the Spirit does its great work. May your words not be lost on us. May they be the very inspiration which we can ascend to new heights, make new connections, leave a blessing. We ask today that this gathering, this time of worship and reflection, would be an offering to you that you would find it pleasing. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts give you joy. Keep your eye upon us and guide us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we had Paul who was traveling to Macedonia, not because he wanted to, but because he had to. A vision came to him and says, come to Macedonia and help us. Now, Paul was in the area of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So we had to sail to Macedonia. Now, he had no specific person in mind that he was going to encounter. He just knew that he was in that region and in that area. Last week, we heard that as he was seeking a place of prayer, he met some women who were along the riverside, and he began to proclaim, and they listened, and among them was a woman called Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a woman of substantial means and property, and she received them into her home. She was baptized, as were members of her household, and she became what history tells us was the first Christian convert in Europe. Now, Paul is still in Macedonia, and he's still operating underneath this vision that he had to come and bring help to that region. Now that he has already secured some some victories for God, he continues to travel around the neighboring area, proclaiming the good news, he along with his partner Silas. Now, while he is in Macedonia, there was a slave girl who was bound with a spirit of divination. And the spirit that was in her, 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 her masters, her owners, used this spirit to turn a prophet because this spirit could see beyond the natural world and could sort of divine things that had not yet happened. So she was enacted and engaged in the role of a fortune teller. But what we have to understand, though, is even though she was bound by this spirit, she did not control the spirit. The spirit was controlling her. Now, Paul and Silas were in the neighboring vicinity, and they were doing God's work, and that wily spirit, sensing that they were witnesses for the God of Israel, began to speak out of turn. So the slave girl, being led about by this spirit, kept pursuing Paul, kept pursuing Silas, and saying, these men are servants of the Most High. Now, Acts tells us, Luke tells us in Acts, that this was happening several days before Paul finally became annoyed. Now, scholars speculate as to what might have been his his point of annoyance. Was it the fact that he was being dogged and pursued by the slave girl? Was it the fact that the spirit was giving away his position? Uh, Did he have some concerns about the exploitation of this slave girl? We don't know. Scholars don't tell us. What we do know is that Paul became fed up He turned to the spirit and says, in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave her. And the spirit had to submit because the name of Christ is powerful. Now, 
this is where things get rather interesting and Paul and Silas find themselves getting into a, a spot of bother. Because the moment that that spirit departs from the slave girl, her value diminishes, at least in the eyes of her owners. Now remember, they used her as a fortune teller. And it was the spirit that was within her that was allowing them to turn a pretty tidy sum. But now the spirit is gone. She is just, once again, slave girl X. That's when they have something to say about this. So we find these, these owners, and we don't know how many there are. Maybe it was a conglomerate. But we find out that they carry some weight in the community. They seize Paul. They seize Silas. They take him to the marketplace. They put him before the town magistrates, and they create some charges. And they said, these, these men, these men are causing disturbances in our community. For they are advocating customs and traditions that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to adopt or observe. You must do something with them. The, the truth is, is that these guys cost us a lot of money. And we want you to punish them for our sins. That's really, that's the implicit text. The explicit text that we hear is that these guys are troublesome. They're Jews and they're trying to, to put their religion all over us. And we're not having that. Now, you notice when the girl had the spirit in her, it was no problem. Nobody had a problem when the, when the spirit was following Paul and Silas around and saying, these are servants of the Most High God. The merchants weren't upset about that. I mean, she wasn't telling fortunes then, right? She was annoying Paul. But they didn't have a problem with that. They didn't have a problem until all of a sudden Paul says, by the name of Jesus, you get out. So the spirit vacates. Now, I don't know what kind of pull these merchants had, but it, it must have been pretty considerable. Maybe, maybe money was changing hands. Who knows? Anyway, what happens to Paul and Silas is that they are stripped, they are flogged, they are taken to the prison, and they're given, the jailer's given explicit orders. These men are to be kept securely. Like, these are... These are high-value targets. So you put them in the prison, and you, you make sure that they are secured in, 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 a, in a very exceedingly uh, confined way. Top-shelf clients. So Paul and Silas are imprisoned. Their feet are placed in stocks, and they're, they're placed sort of in an inner sanctum. And there they are awaiting whatever is to befall them next. And they had some pretty swift injustice. Now, you would think at this point in the story that Paul and Silas are like, well, I guess this is it, right? This is, this is, the, end of the, this is the end of the road. We've been, we've been nicked. We're, we're compromised. But they were undeterred. If there's one thing that any evangelist enjoys as a captive audience... Paul and Silas had that, right? Because, right, their feet are in stocks. The other prisoners are there. They're like, well, we came here to do the Lord's work, so we're going to do the Lord's work. It doesn't matter if there's a couple of bars around us and some chains on our feet. We got, the, we got these guys here. They, surely they could benefit from hearing the gospel. So they begin to pray their prayers, sing hymns, and basically conduct worship right where they're at. 
Now, somewhere around midnight, Luke tells us that there was a violent earthquake that came, so violent that it shook the prison from its foundations. The doors flew open, the chains were loosened. I mean, literally, you could just get up and walk out. Now, the jailer who was asleep, because I'm assuming that the jailer's apartment complex was, uh, his apartment was connected to the jail, like the jail kind of was under his custody and he lived very close by. So he was sleeping because it was midnight. He wakes up, he sees that the doors of the prison are open and he figures, I, I, know, I know inmates, I know prisoners. There's no way that they're gonna have the doors open and they're just gonna hang around to see what's gonna happen next. They're gone, right? They are gone and I don't even have time to sort this out with my authorities. So he grabs his sword and he prepares to just basically say, Goodbye, cruel world. Now, Paul calls to him. I'm not sure if Paul hears the sword come out of the scabbard or he just sort of intimates that the jailer is so beside himself that he wants to die. But Paul calls out, do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And that's when the jailer starts to do some thinking. Because you have to experience that, that this, is not, this is not the first go-around for this jailer to deal with inmates. And, and when he was brought Paul and Silas, those who are in authority over the jailer says, these individuals are particularly troublesome. So you deal with them as you would deal with troublesome inmates. And so he puts them in the inner sanctum, locks them down, secures them, maybe with the, the, the worst of the worst. So he's figuring that these individuals, given the opportunity, would be the first flight risk. So when Paul calls to the jailer and says, do not harm yourself for we are all still here, the jailer does some thinking and says, hold on, what is this? I was told that these were bad characters. I was told that these were villainous people. Now they're concerned about my life. They're concerned about my well-being. So he throws down his sword. He runs in, falls down before Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Now we can take that on a few different levels. One, one commentary that I was reading says that perhaps the jailer was more concerned about what must I do to be saved from the authorities who are going to come asking questions on what happened to our jail here? Why aren't these prisoners in fetters? And why are you fraternizing with them? What's going on here? Because everything about this image is just wrong. Or we could say that the jailer approached Paul and Silas because he's like, why is it that you two individuals who were inmates, who were considered problem people, concerned about me? What must I do to be saved so I can have more of your temperament, more of your likeness? Well, Paul and Silas respond to him and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized in his name. So the jailer tends to the wounds Paul and Silas, we don't know what happens to the other inmates. We don't know if they're all part and parcel, if they've been given absolution, if they finally did. We don't know. Luke just concentrates our energies on this interaction between the jailer, Paul and Silas, because the jailer is having, he's having a revelation for himself. He's starting to realize that whatever charges were brought against these men, it can't be the real deal because he's never seen anything like this before. He's never experienced anything quite like this. This is very revelatory for him. So he tends to their wounds. 
and he is baptized, and his household is baptized. And he brings Paul and Silas food. They become siblings in the faith. Now this commotion that has been set off is this is interesting because it all starts on behalf of a, of a lowly compromised slave girl. And unfortunately, Luke does not give us more information as to what happened to her after the spirit is gone. But this entire passage this morning, which Bill read for us, is all about imprisonment. It's about imprisonment, but it's both not only about physical imprisonment, but it's about spiritual imprisonment. We have the actual spiritual imprisonment of the slave girl. And as a result of this, this, this demon that binds her, she has no agency. She's not able to move and to operate underneath her own volition. Now, of course, she is already compromised because she is a slave girl, but then she's doubly compromised because she now has this spirit which forces her to do things against her own will. Now, it wasn't even Paul's inclination to liberate her because you have to understand that, that in, in the letter of Philemon, Paul understands the master-slave relationship, and he actually kind of keeps that intact. So he wasn't too concerned about the slave girl. He's like, she's someone else's property. His bigger concern was the spirit which kept giving away his position. So Paul wasn't really there to liberate the slave girl. Let's just be clear about that. If the girl spirit hadn't annoyed him, he'd have gone on his way, done his own thing. But it's only because the spirit kept tipping his position, kept giving away his position as to why he was here, became a point of annoyance after days, after days, plural, not day, after days, Paul grew exceedingly annoyed with the fact that this girl was pursuing him. Only then did he cast the spirit out, not for the girl's sake, but to ease his own annoyance. But in doing so, he set turmoil in the community because those who were turning the profit now had to realize that their cash flow was drying up. And when you start to mess with people's livelihood, they get weird on you. I don't know. Maybe some of us have been in that position. <laughs> maybe we've been the ones who say, I got to let you go. Or maybe we were the ones who got let go. People get crazy when you start messing with their livelihood. So Paul and Silas realized that the only thing that was a concern to those individuals right now was the money that they could make. But when they saw that they were giving people hope through the proclamation of the gospel, then they said, well, this is going to be problematic as well. Because we would have to assume that there would be some individuals in that area who were starting to listen to Paul and Silas, and who were considering perhaps maybe being baptized and accepting the call to join the faith. So we have that imprisonment, the spiritual imprisonment. And then we also have the sort of lack of imagination of the masters of the slave girl, that immediately they realized that, that there was a possibility that hearts and minds could be won over by this message of Christ, and they didn't want that either. So they said to the magistrates, these men are dangerous. Because if you don't control them now, pretty soon you're going to have their philosophy, their ideology running rampant all over the community. And then what are you going to do? Then what are you going to do when you have all these people out there proclaiming Christ is risen? We can't have that, so you've got to deal with them. 
But throwing them into prison didn't stop their motivation. So even though Paul and Silas were physically imprisoned, they still proclaimed the gospel. You cannot stop the momentum of a message as powerful and as effective as the resurrected Christ. Now, were there other converts that were going to take place in the prison? We don't know, but the jailer is a major score. Because the jailer has already built his entire life on the dealing and the care of dealing with difficult and problematic people. And if the problematic people that are brought to him now have concern for his welfare, now have concern and value for his life, now want him to be spared, then perhaps maybe this jailer is going to have a turn of heart, which might result in a complete career change. How can he now conduct his work the same way again? He can no longer assess people on the basis of what the authorities have said they've done. He now has to assess them on the basis of his understanding of the unity that he has now been called to in Christ. So the jailer, maybe the jailer was more imprisoned through limited thinking than he realized. And it wasn't until he encountered the liberating words of Paul and Silas that he realized that he has an opportunity to be set free and to be delivered up into a new way of living. If nothing else, the running theme of this story is redirecting our attentions from people through unusual circumstances. By disrupting the standards and practices that bring about a new community via new values and new objectives. So let's think about what this text means to us in our own contemporary circumstance where we are at right now. What must we do and what must be done for us to change long-held opinions and observations? I would like to say that cataclysmic events would be enough to turn our attention to God's redirection. But sadly, we have normalized our extreme events to the point of placing the charged and intense energy of a world in crisis. We've put it on mute. We've just turned the squelch knob. At least it's good to have a congregation old enough to even know what a squelch knob is. For, for you young ones, just look it up on Google. You'd be like, I don't know what that means. It's because you're too young. <laughs> We've become a desensitized people, friends. Extreme events, sadly to say, they don't even phase us anymore. We have normalized them as a part of what it means to live in this society. And that hurts us, and it hurts the communities that we are called to bless. We cannot be comfortable with these disruptions. We can't make it business as usual, and we cannot ask God to accept this. I would say that the great sin of the contemporary church is indifference. It is our indifference. Either being able to say, well, these things, they've happened in areas where we don't live, or they happen in the city, and that's why we live in the rural communities, or they happen amongst these group of people, and you know they're half savages anyway. So there's that sense in which we can always sort of dismiss things away because it's not happening in our zip code because it's happening to people that we don't know in a place that we've never been. 
And this is the presumption which causes us to not see ourselves collectively as the people of God. Like we'll call members of our own household of faith. These are our brothers and sisters in the faith, but as for those other neighboring fellowships and as for those other communities, I don't, I don't know those people. This was the understanding that Paul had when he was called to Macedonia. Come to Macedonia and help us. Not help some of us. Not help just the men folk of us. Not help just the people who are merchants and who have some, some means. Come to Macedonia and help us. So Paul is immediately called from the start of the vision to make no distinctions. And as we see him moving through that region, he does exactly that. He continues to, to meet people without this sort of judgmental quality that sometimes often seems to, to travel with humanity. So a couple of takeaways that I want to share with you from today's passage. And the first one is that there are times when we are going to be provoked to do God's work. Paul wasn't particularly concerned about the slave girl, but the spirit inside of her caused him to reconsider. And when he did, then it began to set off a chain of events which ultimately resulted in the jailer being brought into the household of faith. What is it going to take, or what has it already taken, to provoke each and every one of us to realize that the things that are unfolding in our world are intolerable and unacceptable, and we're tired of it, and we're ready to act. What's it going to take? Because we don't want to wait until these things happen on our block, and then we go, oh, now it's an epidemic. Now we've got to do something. Right? You know, like when it, when it happens to somebody you know, then all of a sudden it's a problem. But, uh, but when it happens to somebody else, it's their problem. So we need to think about the ways in which God is provoking us. Because it's not that God has spoken. God is speaking. The question is, is are we, the people of God, listening? And the second takeaway is ours is a caring faith. Not ours as first congregational, but ours collectively. Church universal is a caring faith. The very important part of faith is the ability to feel something for another. This is what astounded the jailer. The jailer, and if you've ever asked anyone who's a correctional officer, there's definitely a polarity. You have your inmates, you have your correctional officers, and there's not much love between the two camps. This jailer in Acts is operating underneath that. I'm the jailer. I have to keep those who are imprisoned until their time of imprisonment is over, until their trial comes. That's what I do. I'm not friends with them. I don't care about them other than to keep them alive so they can, justice can be meted out. But we're not friends. And so you would think that the inmates also would have that same like-mindedness. Jailer, I don't care if the jailer falls on his sword. He locked me up in these fetters. He doesn't care about me. He's no friend of mine. So when Paul calls out and says, do not harm yourself for we are all still here, everybody has a moment of pause and they go, is this a new teaching? How is it that you were concerned about my life when just moments earlier I had you put in stocks and locked behind doors? 
How is it now that you are actually concerned about my well-being and the well-being of my household? What is this new teaching? Paul's like, come in closer. I've got more to tell you. So faith cannot work without that feeling. If our faith creates a vacuum in which we no longer see and interact with one another as partners in this faith, then the love of God simply cannot be conveyed from us to our target. We have to make a personal investment, an emotional investment, in our communities to see them work effectively. So I was asked, it's like, have you been praying for the, the shootings that have been taking place? I said, you know, actually, I've stopped doing public prayers. One, the frequency is so great. And two, I still have some questions as to whether or not we even know what we're doing when we say these prayers. It's almost sort of like a Jamesian type thing that our faith has no action. It has no teeth. We say these things so we can absolve ourselves from the fact that we really don't want to take the effort to make the significant changes that have to happen. We don't really want to be nosy and to inquire as to who might be the troubled individuals that we could engage with, but too busy too busy. We kid ourselves if we think that these things could not happen in our community. We kid ourselves to think that we don't have people who are equally and grievously uh, disturbed, distressed, and feeling very much alone. We kid ourselves to think that somehow we can just wish this away in some magical fashion. Like Paul and Silas, what I learn is that if you want to see change, if you want to see significant and transformational change in your community, you've got to be willing to get yourselves in a bind. The only way that Paul and Silas could convince anyone that there was any relevance to what they were doing was to cross a threshold in which they put themselves at risk. But as a result, there was a household of faith that was developed. There was a change of mind and a change of condition that happened as a result of themselves putting themselves in the breach. If we can't follow that lead, the church will be, it'll, it'll be like a good, nice social hangout. But it won't have the impact and the intensity which I think Christ intends for the church. Think on these things and Maybe collectively, collectively, we will strategize and come up with a plan where we too can be a transformed people whose only objective is to transform our communities. Amen. Let us join together in our responsive hymn number 284.
Please be seated. Let us join together for the fellowship of prayer. Let us pray. God of grace, power, new beginnings. Let your spirit envelop us today as we reflect on the invitation to draw closer to you. To find the motivation and the courage needed to speak words that need to be heard and to listen to those who need to be heard. Help us to not feel powerless against what we recognize as an ongoing evil that we seem stymied by. It is true that we have become exhausted seeing the same narrative play out over and over in various places about the country. We've taken to disconnecting from news feeds. It doesn't mean that these things won't happen. It just means we'll find out about it a little bit later. Perhaps we've even lost faith in our institutions of faith because they too seem to lack any proactive plan. It's not even a little town hall where we might just be able to express collectively our frustrations. Maybe the truth is, God, is that more of us feel alone than we realize. We just don't always follow our alienation with violence. But we're just as disaffected as those who would. We know that you can speak to this malaise that's in us. You can speak to our confusion. You can breathe new life into us. Help us to re-engage with you to trust that indeed you are still moving and speaking. Give us ears to hear. And save us from empty platitudes, weak talking points, vacuous gestures. You've given us faith. You've given us places of worship where we can build, practice our faith. And the church, for all of its ills throughout generation, is still a very powerful institution. 
it still represents an incredible testimony of a man who came forth, noticed individuals, and ushered them all into new life. And those transformed individuals went forward and continued to transform communities. We are part of that tradition. We are part of that faith. Our spiritual forebearers are the ones who taught us how to stay the course in good seasons and in bad seasons. Where did we lose our way? So it is our prayer today that you would help us find our way to find something to believe in, to find something worth getting messy over, to find something that gives our voice resonance, to find something in our communities worth preserving, and to practice the work of peace in our homes, workspaces, play spaces, and in the public sphere so we can become examples, maybe even so brilliant and so recognizable that we're worthy of emulation. No more hand-wringing, no more shrugging of shoulders, no more ignorance. The church is not called to be ignorant. The church is called to be proactive. So that requires that Every participant in the church recognizes their own call to service. That we have the ability to bind and to loose. Jesus gave us that authority. So what needs unbinding? What needs to be set free? What can we happily live without in order that future generations might have a world that is not only worth living in, but safe to live in? Speak to our hearts. If not in today's worship service, then somewhere during the course of the ensuing weeks and days, in the quiet moments, in the times when we're just moving about in the car. Disrupt us, as you have so many saints who have gone on before us. Provoke us that we too might realize that without us, some situations and conditions will not improve. Without our involvement, without our wisdom, without our resources, some things will continue to deteriorate underneath our watch. There is a responsibility you've called us to undertake by saying yes to you. May we demonstrate to you that we have heard your call and we are in the process of responding. Bless those who are sick and suffering, those whose bodies and minds are in recovery. We ask that you would bless their health. 
Bless those who continue to struggle with addiction and depression, debilitating ailments that rob people of their vitality and sometimes their life. Help us to be part of the intervention that others need. We entrust to you today the prayers, the concerns, the thanksgivings that we have within us right now. And we ask that you would receive them as we set them before you today. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Thank you for hearing us. Collect these prayers said unto you and remember us as we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
by your mercies, God, we ask that you receive these gifts that we set before you. May you consecrate them, and may you strengthen each and every one of us, your called disciples, that our gifts, our time, our talent, our treasure, our very presence, might be infused with your love. Help us take it far beyond these walls. Transform our communities in your name. We take communion via the center aisle, you depart on the side aisles, and there you will find trays to receive your communion cups. Now I invite my communion assistants to come forward.
praise, God of glory. We thank you once again. You have kept your eye upon us. You have led us forth to provide for us opportunities. May that never change. May we always be ready to incline our ears to hear you. Help us to find that motivation to keep that flame of the gospel alive in our hearts and active in the world. We join together in our closing hymn, number 603.
safe holiday weekend to reflect, to remember, pay respect to lives that were given in service.